Welcome everyone to Mystery AI Hype Theater 3000, where we seek catharsis in the age of AI hype. We find the worst of it and pop it with the sharpest needles we can find. Along the way, we learn to always read the footnotes. And each time we think we've reached peak AI hype, the summit of bullshit mountain, we discover there's worse to come. I'm Emily M. Bender, a professor of linguistics at the University of Washington. And I'm Alex Hanna, director of research at the Distributed AI Research Institute. This is episode one, which we first recorded on August 31st of 2022. And it's actually one of three episodes looking at a long, long blog post from a Google vice president, ostensibly about getting, quote, AIs to, quote, behave. We thought we'd get it all done in one hour. Then we did another hour, that's episode two, and then we did a third, episode three. And this one, episode one being our first, we started off with some sound issues. So it's a bit awkward to start. And we're back. <laughs> Are we back? All right. Yes, we're back. We're back. All right. So sorry. <laughs> oh, we're here. How's the sound, folks? Yeah. Have how's the sound? It? Let us let us know. Um, if it's still trash, then maybe we'll reschedule this thing. But now I'm using OBS to stream. Um, and it looks like it's working. Everyone's happy. Oh, cool. All right. Why don't we get into the article? So while we have yeah. good luck. Okay. Let's do the thing. Um, so just to very briefly recap, we are concerned about AI hype. It seems worthwhile to dig into an AI hype artifact because there's not enough pushback in the world. And this is a way to do pushback. Um, the beautiful graphic that Alex created for this event suggests that we're actually talking about a New York Times article, but we are not. Um, we decided to keep the actual article secret until moments from now when I reveal it. Um, and the other important thing to know here is that I have read this blog post and Alex has not. And so the idea right. is something along the lines of reaction video. It's like, um, yeah, a reaction, unboxing, things of that. <laughs> <laughs> that. <laughs> but she does know who wrote it and what it is, yes. right? I, um, I did. I, I must confess, I skimmed it last night and I was just like, and then I was like, you know, and then I, I think I was on the phone on a Zoom call with someone and I was like, what the fresh hell is this? So let's let's do it. <laughs> let's, let's do get it. Okay. Into it. Yeah. So here we are. Did my screen share work? Yeah, I'm seeing yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, All right. perfect. Yeah. So this is a blog post written by a Google VP asking the question, can machines learn how to behave? Yes. Um, yeah. And I just, and, and just, just want to say some background on this. Yes, I was I was talking to Dylan last night. That's who I was talking to. Let me check. Hey, Dylan, what's up? Dylan, uh, our uh, data engineer at Deere. And um, so so Blaze is uh, a VP at Google. has been there for a while. Has opined a lot on AI and large language technologies. Uh, as sort of... Um, you know, like known to be sort of this charming figure in <laughs> AI in, in a very, uh, 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 I don't know, I think fancies himself a bit of a philosopher. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to go after him as an individual um, because uh, as a sociologist, I'm less interested in, in talking about individuals, more interested in thinking about what ideas they're propagating and how that is sort of um, kind of a discursive knot and sort of a, a set of discourses and what that enables. So yeah, I'm gonna put that. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. And I, 
say I've never um, met Blaze. I've interacted with him by reacting to some of his blog posts in the past with blog posts of my own. Um, and, you know, like Alex is saying, I'm in it for the artifact and not for the person here. Um, and this artifact has um, a lot going on. Um, so when I read it the first time, it seemed like every paragraph or so there was what felt like a howler and it felt like it'd be worthwhile to talk about it. So it uh, starts off um, saying beyond the current news cycle, whether or not they're sentient, there's this more practical and immediately consequential conversation about AI value alignment. And already that feels like we're down a yeah. strange path. Yeah. Yeah. We're like, we're, we're, we've, we've, we've kind of kicked this idea of value alignment as sort of this really weird terminology sort of evading kind of things about, um, about kind of AI and whether AI should exist or like, or not. Um, and rather than like AI should exist, but it should have our values, you know, whatever that means. Cause I don't really know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> and also that whole discussion is around and this whole thing. Can machines learn how to behave suggests autonomy mm -hmm. and suggests that we don't have a choice about whether or not we delegate authority and autonomy to machines. Mm -hmm. And we absolutely do. And this like idea of looking at it in terms of, well, we have to get the AI aligned with our values there's a whole problem of whose values, right? Mm -hmm. But on top of that, it's like, well, well, why, right? Why cede so much to automation? Mm -hmm. um, and it often feels like because if the values that the automation are aligning with are the values of people in power, then we can sort of say, oh, well, it's not us, it's the machines. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. So super skeptical. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, second paragraph. If as some researchers, hello, contend that language models are mere babblers that randomly regurgitate their training data, um, then real AI value alignment is, at least for now, out of reach. So, as uh, one of the people who contends that, right. you know. This is like, babblers. this is pointing at you directly, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, in, you know, two peer-reviewed papers, I should say, not, mm -hmm. you know, just Twitter and blog posts. Um, it's not that I say, therefore, AI value alignment is out of reach. I have a totally different reaction to that, as I was just saying, right? It's, it's just a category error to ask mm -hmm. this question. That's right. Um, so, and then, so there are some profound challenges here, including governance, who gets to define what is toxic, um, and so on. This is around the idea of, of trying to clean up data sets. Um, and that always just feels like such a cop-out. Like, mm -hmm. well, who gets to say it's toxic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, there's people who have been saying that it's toxic for some time. I mean, people who are saying that are calling these out, they're saying that these things happening. And I mean, it is a dodge because one of the things, I mean, is that one, you know, like, as you know, one, all these things are typically bound to only English language, right? So the quote unquote bender rule, right? <laughs> the, so people are, but, you know, like we have this, people toxicity that I mean toxic is is such a bizarre term itself too because I mean when you talk about toxicity or hate speech or I mean toxicity is a term that sort of lives within computer science but when you're talking about things like discrimination or different kinds of frameworks you're not using the word toxic you're using you know language about rights or language about um, disparaging or um, dehumanization, right? I mean, those are different and more concrete kinds of things, right? And so that kind of, um, and these things are happening all the time already, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this question of, of who gets to decide and sort of putting it out there like that suggests that there's no power analysis to be done, mm -hmm. that everybody has um, 
an equal ability to perceive what is disparaging and discriminatory. Um, and you know, there's what's really missing here is something like um, you know understanding via the the matrix of domination. Right? But, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of of really great work in black feminist thought that sort of lays out systematic ways of thinking about this that are more sophisticated and more valuable than just like, well, we put everybody on evil playing field and then evil equal playing field, evil playing field, and they have to just sort of fight it out as to who gets to decide, which is not the suggestion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, so labor, uh, I appreciate oh, yeah. oh, finish <laughs> that labor. So I, um, I mean, is it humane to employ people to do toxic filtering? I mean, I will give him credit there, sure. I mean, like, that's something that, like, people, a lot of people have written about Sarah Roberts' work on on commercial content moderation uh, and scale. Can we realistically build larger language models under such constraints? The skeptical view also suggests a dubious payoff for the whole language model research program since the practical value of a mere babbler is unclear. Uh, agreed. What meaningful task could a model do a model of no understanding of concepts be interested to do? If the answer is none, then why bother with them at all? Curious. I'm interested to see what the argument is, Emily. Let's read the next paragraph. <laughs> so I just, you know, I want to um, point out here that there's so many assumptions that, of course, we should be building large language models, right? How mm-hmm. can we realistically build them under such constraints? Well, maybe the answer is don't build them. Mm-hmm. Like, that needs to be on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, what meaningful tasks could a model with no understanding of concepts be entrusted to do um, well, let's see. You can get pretty far with, um, you know, speech recognition without understanding concepts, and that's a meaningful and useful task. Um, not as good yet as, you know, the work of actual humans, like the wonderful captioner that we were able to hire for today, but um, still beneficial. Um, but anything where um, the outcome matters to people, um, you probably don't want to trust that model, especially if the people are looking at the language output and interpreting it, because mm. it's it's got no, there's no there there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm curious what the premise here is on the turn here. So on the other hand, I, if as all of you hear, large angles models are able to understand concepts. Okay, you know, I'm I'm curious what he means by understand and concept, but let's continue. I think um, we'll get then, there. <laughs> then they'll have far greater utility. Though with this utility, we must also consider why are landscape of potential harms and risks, urgent social and policy questions arise too. And so many of us, myself included, make our living doing information work. Curious what that also means, information work and what that who that encompasses. What will it mean for the labor market, our economic model, and even our sense of purpose when so many of today's desk jobs can be automated? Ooh, that is quite a presumption. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Um, so there's this. Are you following the Substack by um, uh, Narayanan and Kapoor? If I'm getting their names right, um, about AI snake oil. The first episode of that just came out today. Oh um, yeah. I. I and, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not familiar, but yeah. Um, it's they make wonderful points in there about how so much of this work in. I mean, they're, they're going after the category of deep learning, but uh-huh. I think it's the same thing sort of looks at the artifacts that are output and says, well, the work of producing those artifacts is the work. And so if we can make that same form, then we have automated the work. And mm. and that's where this like presumption of being able to um, automate desk jobs. Mm. Um, they say it really well in the Substack. I recommend it. Mm. Um, yeah, drop it in the in the in the chat or something and folks can follow it. Let's yeah. let's go um, while you do that, let's scroll down. And like 
I'm like, okay, we, yeah. we scheduled an hour for this. <laughs> like, uh, so this is no longer a remote hypothetical prospect, but attention to as waned as AI denialism, denialism, curious, <laughs> has regained, has gained traction. Many, many AI ethicists have narrowed their focus to a subset of language model problems consistent with the assumption that they understand nothing. Their failure to work for underrepresented, for digitally underrepresented populations, problematization of bias, generation defects, and outputs of words that might offend. Whew, that was. Yeah. What? <laughs> AI denialism? Like. Is it like, what? is that like climate denialism, Emily? <laughs> so, I mean, okay, I'm always interested in looking at what's presupposed, right? Yeah. So, in the phrase, like you say, climate denialism, someone utters that phrase, they're saying, there's a important thing about the climate that I, the speaker, agree to be true. And if you, by listening to me, if you don't challenge the supposition, you're in there with me. Yeah. And these other people are denial, den denying it. They are den denialists. And so he's saying the same thing. Like, yeah. oh, AI denialism has gained traction. Those, those people out there who are putting out misinformation about how AI right. isn't what we claim, I guess. I don't right. Know. It's like, mis okay. it's like that. It's, whoa, what, a, what an interesting thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, um, and then many AI ethicists have narrowed their focus to the subset of language model problems consistent with the assumption that they understand nothing. Um, they fail you to work with it. Okay, so this is sort of like, it's sort of like the premise is that you have to say that they understand, there's no concept of under, understanding. Okay, but this is the argument. The argument is, is, is yeah. his premise seems to be we have to say that there's some notion of understanding that's happening under the hood and um, there's sort of a coherent kind of thing that can be called sort of a concept or sort of a body of facts because I'm even in the sort of loose kind of understanding of what is a concept is sort of like I'm sort of it, it evades me a bit and there's some work that exists within machine learning on sort of like so like TCAVs for instance the um, mm -hmm. concept active you know concept activation vectors but i've always kind of wondered like what exists here what is a concept what is that what is this ontological what is this ontologically like yeah. what does it actually yeah. mean like is race a concept uh you know is like gender a concept like and then you yeah. look at the papers and it's like well you know strikiness is a concept like strike like because <laughs> they're like yeah. you know like how do you understand like the machine is understanding that this is like a zebra. It's like, well, stripiness. I'm like, how is stripiness like a concept? That's like a visual. So it's kind yeah. of, so I'm just like, how is that different from, from saying this is like an understanding of sort of um, a pattern or as you, you've said, Emily, and like that these are pattern matchers, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. So the concepts, like, a lot of the stuff in language is like, well, we've got we've got clusters of word vectors that relate that are sort of be, they're clustered because they appear in similar contexts, and so that is a concept. Um, and it's like, yeah, that might be the reflection of a concept in textual distribution, but that's not the same thing as the concept itself. Mm -hmm. yeah. And yeah, but there's a, I think there's a bigger problem. Well, something that's, that's bugging me about this paragraph is he says many AI ethicists. I'm like, who's how much have you read? What's that quantifying over? But setting that aside. Um, have narrowed their focus to these problems mm -hmm. as if we are um, really not engaging with the important stuff which happens when the AI is actually understanding something. Mm -hmm. And from my perspective, it's like, no, actually, the people who are looking at um, promulgation of bias 
Um, failure to work for digitally underrepresented populations. That's probably a pointer to like Joy Bulam Winnie's work with Gabraji and Timmy Gebru, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, generation of deep fakes, output of words that might offend. All of these are what happens when the technology we have now is deployed and affects actual people living in the world now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I feel like the folks who are off there thinking about, well, let's make sure we get AI aligned with human values they're the ones with the narrow focus because they're working in this fantasy world that's not connected to any like, right. actual people's actual experience. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's what's getting me worked up about this paragraph. Yeah. This, but this, the next paragraph. Oh my God. The next paragraph is, <laughs> so this is like in the citations. So yeah, so there's mm-hmm. serious issues. However, t- these are serious issues. However, today's AI models are, are becoming far more capable than this narrow focus implies. Okay. AI can engineer drugs or poisons, design proteins, write code, solve puzzles, model people's states of mind. Okay, I just want to stop at that because what, yeah, what the hell? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> control robots and human environments and plan strategies. These things. So I got to that. Yeah, like these are a lot, and like I'd love to like pop in, and I, you've got the second tab open because we like we got to go over yes. to these citations. Yes. <laughs> so like so, okay. Uh, I hit that one and I was like, what does he mean, model people's states of mind? Because states of modeling someone's states of mind, that's what allows you to say things like, oh, I can tell that um, Kim over there is looking for their keys, right? And that's because I am watching Kim's behavior and thinking about what would make me do those things? What can Kim see? What does Kim like? And, and like that's modeling Kim's state of mind. It's also really important for um, communication and language, mm-hmm. right? We, we model each other's states of mind. And I'm thinking, what research would be showing that, um, right, today's AI, right? yeah. today's AI models, that's large language models, right? We're talking GPT-3, we're talking Lambda, we're talking, right? Really? Yeah. What research is showing that? Right. So, first of all, this is on archive. Right. Well, all of these are on archive. Like, the, the last three... I mean, I think yeah. the only one was the protein um, one, the one and the one that was the poison one, um, competition level code. Like, I'm not sure what competition level code is. Um, that's what's kind of curious, given that most code is not competition level code. Um, yeah. But they're all, yeah, these are all, um, yeah, these are all in yeah. so not peer reviewed. Um, and is this, there we go. Um, so I went and looked. This is kind of small. Hopefully people mm-hmm. can see it. Mm-hmm. Um, what did they do? Well, they took a collection of text um, in, in Korean, by the way, because I assume it wasn't English here. Um, and they had people annotate sentences of diaries um, for whether the writer was mentioning the presence of others without inferring their mental state. So the examples, I saw a man walking down the street, the street um, fails to take the perspective of others. I don't understand why they refuse to wear masks or successfully takes the perspective of others, it must have been hard for them to continue working. So some existing text written by people, annotated by other people for these three categories. And then they trained a BERT-type model to redo that classification, right? That is not the same thing as the BERT model actually modeling anybody else's state of mind, right? right? It's BERT reproducing those classes, and it doesn't actually do that well. Yeah. <laughs> so when you click through the paper, it's like, yeah, like, you know, better than chance kind of a thing. Right, right. So this kind of, so, it's quite a, it, yeah, I mean, it's it's quite a claim. And I mean, that's, 
Yeah, I'm. I, I mean, this is like, I have a hard time sort of parsing this because it's sort of thinking about this in kind of a communication, you know, like communication. Like, I, it's very curious how this is. And I mean, I haven't really come across this kind of idea of theory of mind or or kind of a matter of empathy uh, 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 as a matter. But it's it's sort of like you're, you're saying that you're inferring some kind of internal state, which is already like all my alarm bells are ringing on, on what this is, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that that people do on a regular basis, and it's embedded in our language. And I, I noticed in the chat that people are reminding us that this is also frequently weaponized against autistic people, and that's a, a big problem. Yeah. Um, so thank you for pointing that out in the chat. Um, the When I hear a theory of mind, I'm thinking of things along the lines of, it's what allows us to say and understand sentences like, you know, um, Alex believes sociology is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, where that sentence is talking about your what I think your beliefs are. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order for a computer to do that, the computer would have to like literally have representation of the person that it's talking to and the ability to reason about it and all these things that the language model doesn't have. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not inferring any internal states. Yeah, but I think Blaze wants it to. And so yeah. he makes this statement here, Right, uh, model people's states of mind, and then you know cites that thing off archive, which doesn't even support that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, let's let's get into this. Um, these things are hard to dismiss as mere babble. <laughs> okay, they'll they'll increasingly involve substantive interactions with people and real outcomes in the world, whether for good or for ill. If AIs are highly capable, but malicious or just clueless about right and wrong. And some of the dangerous outcomes could even resemble those popularized by the different community of philosophers and researchers who have written them more, both more sensationally and less groundedly about existential risks, AI existential risks. Okay, there's a lot. The AI existential risks people, like, I kind of, like, if we go off on them, I kind of don't think we'll finish this bit. (laughs) (laughs) We could have a whole thing about the AI existential risks people. We could invite to meet to talk about long-termism and effective yeah. altruism and like we could go off we we could do a reading group and like a, a hate read of that but like <laughs> i'm willing to bracket that for the sake of going, <laughs> reading the rest of this yes. all right let's keep going <laughs> uh okay let's see um yeah streaming series this is definitely going to be a series uh it's it's becoming increasingly clear that these disconnected camps on the ai ethics debate only see one part of the picture those who are deeply skeptical about what ai can do haven't acknowledged either the risk or the potential of the emerging generation of a general purpose ai on the other hand (laughs) i want to finish this this sentence and then like (laughs) and then get into it yeah (laughs) ben's in the chat saying aj makes an appearance drink yeah on the other hand, while those in the existential risk camp have been expansive in their articulation of potential harms and benefits, they consider AGI to be so distant, mysterious, and inscrutable that it'll emerge spontaneously in an intelligence explosion decades from now. Um, curious what the citation is there. AGI might then proceed, perhaps due to some Douglas Adamish programming oversight, to turn the whole universe into paper or works. What's the citation on this intelligence explosion? Uh, oh, future of life. Okay, uh, <laughs> like all right. Uh, so we're getting into the sites of super intelligence and Nick Holmstrom. So this is definitely um, stuff to stuff to be annoyed about. 
Yes. Okay. I'm like willing to bracket this because I'm just like, ugh, it's going to, yeah. yeah. But, uh, so, okay, such doomsday scenarios may have seemed credible in 2014, but they're far less so now that we're starting to understand the landscape better. Language modeling has proven to be the key to making the leap from specialized machine learning applications of the 2010s to the general purpose, purpose AI technology of the 2020s. It's not general purpose AI technology, right? It's not. We wrote a paper on this. <laughs> on on at least the models. benchmarks. Yeah, they're, they're language models or they're visual models and yeah. kind of anything, this kind of language of general purpose AI sort of says, you know, you take a large language model and then you bolt on some kind of um, specialized tuning to it and this makes it sort of a general sort of model and... And it's and it's sort of like um and I'm I'm really curious on the sort of like bolting on as sort of like a a move both technically and sort of as a, a, a you know like it's it, because there's a certain kind of this idea of general purpose AI is sort of it is it, it it kind of is something that is a slightly different argument than an AGI because I feel like it is we're going to have sort of one computer. And one thing that does stuff with language, or we're going to do something that is stuff with multimodal data inputs. And then there's been such a kind of like, there's been so much hype specifically on that. That is, you don't have to believe in AGI to sort of like go to general purpose AI, you know, like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And the, the problem, I mean, now I'm just repeating some of the stuff we said in our paper, but the, that I, and I put the link to the paper in the, in the chat this general purpose thing is just a fallacy that we're all falling into because mm -hmm. you put enough training data into a large language model, it can spit out text on any topic. And so you can easily fool yourself into thinking that it can do something useful on those topics. But as soon as the outcome matters, as soon as like the, the sort of truthfulness and grabbiness of that text matters to anybody, it's clear that it can't. Mm -hmm. And so, no, we don't have general purpose AI technology. Um, and I'm not sure we want general purpose AI technology. Like yeah. that's another, you know, all this stuff about existential risk. It's like, so don't build it. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm, yeah, we're going to have to do like a, like a hate read of super intelligence or something. Cause I just, <laughs> if we could stomach it. <laughs> if we could stomach it, you know, I feel like any, but let's, um, yeah, let's, yeah. let's, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, it looks like there's some enthusiasm for this to become a series. And yeah. We'll be faster and better with the setup next time, yeah. right? Although anthropomorphism does pose its own risk, this familiarity is good news in that it may make human value alignment far more straightforward than the existential risk community has imagined. Whew, that was a sentence I didn't want to read. Uh, this is because <laughs> although our biology endows us with certain pre-linguistic moral sentiments, such as care for offspring and in-group altruism, both of which we share with many other species, language generalizes these sentiments into ethical values, whether widely held or aspirational. Uh, hence, oral or written language models have mediated the field of ethics, moral philosophy, law, and religion for thousands of years. Uh, you're no linguist, Emily. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean... Okay, I'm a linguist. I'm not into like, you know, the sort of deep anthropological history and these questions about like, how does language relate to our development as a species and whatnot. But I mean, 
Does language generalize sentiments into ethical values? Language allows us to talk about these things with each other yeah. and to um, produce, uh, you know, morality plays and other things where we pass them on to, you know, within a society to, to further generations. Um, oral and written languages have mediated the field of ethics. Like, well, yes, it's true that um, any academic field takes place in language. <laughs> um, laws are famously written in language. Um, religions famously have religious texts, which is language. Um, yeah. Um, but again, it's, I think it's important that these are texts that are produced and interpreted by people who like actually have full linguistic competence. Um, right. It's kind and, of a, yeah, it's kind of an yeah. interesting claim to sort of that these are language generalize these sentiments into ethical values as if there's a way to sort of say that there's sort of ethical values that I, I like it's, it's, I, yeah, I'm, I don't know how to evaluate this claim other than it's kind of bizarre. Right. And as someone was pointing out in the um, chat, not a whole lot of citations in this part. No. Um, okay. For an AI model to behave according to a given set of ethical values, it has to be able to understand what those values are just as we would. Um, no false, Right. I mean, all designed artifacts have values designed into them. Right, yeah. um, if we're going to have a machine that's behaving according to a set of ethical values, that could be because we have designed it well for its environment and the values that we want it to represent without it having any understanding of what they are. I, you know, right. is, um, by sharing language with AIs, we can share norms and values with them too. What? <laughs> so it's sort of, so I think, is a claim here that because ethics are mediated by language, you know, and these models, we're building these AI models and they have to understand our values, then we we share AI, we share our norms with them too. And so that's sort of like, that's either one claim, one of the more reductive claims, which is sort of, these things have values embedded with them, which is true. Sure, artifacts have values. <laughs> artifacts are politics. <laughs> but then the the other kind of, I think the stronger claim, which I think he's making here, is that AI has some kind of internal representation of values and that we're sharing language with them and they're sharing those norms as the sort of agentic agent. Yeah. And that is yeah. a bizarre claim. <laughs> right. And like, then that those norms are guiding their behavior. Yeah. Like, that's oh, just, these are machines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oof. Okay. That that was a that was a, a knee slapper there. Should like come up with like a, a thing for the series when something's a real zinger, we like ring a bell or some kind of have a little animation go across the screen. Yeah. If you people like know if there's some twitchy like norm on that, please share the chat. <laughs> So someone said Wittgenstein is rolling in his grave. We can have a little animated Wittgenstein rolling. In I know. Oh yeah. Well, uh, that's Wells. Wells, make an animated Wittgenstein, and we can like. Talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Uh, All right, keeps going though. In itself, the ability to endow an AI, and can we please stop it with the you know yeah. an AI or the AIs yeah. as if they are like individuals in the world? Okay. The ability to endow one of these things with values isn't yeah. a panacea. It doesn't guarantee perfect judgment, an unrealistic goal for either human or machine. Nor does it address governance questions. 
who gets to define an AI's values and how much scope will these have for personal or cultural variation? So now we're back to the just like, oh yeah, well, you know, we're all different. So how do we decide who decides? Right. You know? Yeah. The, ah, um, <laughs> Are some values sure. better than others? Oh dear. How should AI, how should these machines, let's say like, let's say, um, let's replace like AIs or any kind of that with like, um, how does, how does Matthew, how does a mathy model <laughs> their creators yeah. and their users be held morally accountable sure neither neither does it tackle the economic problem articulated by Keynes. for shout out to Keynes, um how to in 1930 how to equitably distribute the collective gains of increasing automation so soon to include much of intellectual labor oh okay <laughs> like that yeah just this, this yeah. such a claim um I want to go to the next paragraph and see we got like 10 minutes left and like, <laughs> but I'd love yeah. to get to the end of the first section at least. Maybe we can take up the rest <laughs> in, a, in a long time. This one blog post is going to become a series. I know. What it All does, right, what, so like, right. let's see, let's, let's get to the end of this and discuss. So what it does okay. offer is a clear route to imbuing mathy, um, mathy oh, math yeah. with values that are transparent, legible, and controllable by ordinary people. Okay, I'm not sure how that shakes out. It also suggests mechanisms for addressing the narrow issue, narrow issues of bias and liberal representation with the same frame, same framework. Because remember, those issues are the narrow ones. Those are the narrow ones. The, you know, and I, in some ways, I agree that bias is a very narrow framing yes. and up, underrepresented framing. But yes. the way that he is saying the more important issue is quote unquote value alignment which is a, I would say, sort of a narrow, also narrow, and fits very squarely into considering bias. Yeah. Um, yeah. My view is that AI values needn't be and shouldn't be dictated by engineers, ethicists, lawyers, or any narrow other narrow constituency. Yeah, I mean, okay. Neither should they remain bulleted on lists of disarada um, posted on the web pages of standards bodies, governments, or corporations, or direct connection to running code. They should instead become the legible and audible operating handbooks of tomorrow's mathy maths. <laughs> uh, okay, that's that's a lot there. Like what's yeah. what is being what's being said here? Because I'm sort of like reading this and it's sort of saying that the way I'm reading it is saying we shouldn't have sort of First off, you have to accept that value alignment is sort of a real thing, which I'm already like, mm, okay, I do yeah. think governance of AI and data should be more collectively gained, mm -hmm. but value alignment is not where that governance comes from, right? Value alignment already gives away the game. It says that AIs, AIs or mathy maths <laughs> are these things <laughs> that need to be need to be created they right. are going to be publicly serving some kind of need and because they're going to be we need to have some kind of um auditable something of this and that has some connection to do with these internal states by these models rather than like which is a really weird it's a it's a bizarre claim because it's sort of, sort of saying like you're already giving some some inevitability to the modeling. You're also sort of discarding standards bodies, 
governments, people that are ostensibly, you know, part of existing governance structures. So it's sort of like it's a real it's a real dodge here, and I'm and I'm and I and I'm just having such a struggle even taking the premise of this, you know, very seriously. I want to take us back up to the top to the yeah. on top of what's on the screen. How should AIs, their creators, and their users be held morally accountable? Um, so first, I want to say there's a category error here in talking about AIs being, sorry, mathy maths being <laughs> held morally accountable. Right? The moral accountability is something that properly sits with people. Yeah. Um, and um, it properly sits with people who have agency. So creators, yes, have agency here. Users, well, depending. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you're the person who has to deal with some voice recognition system to get to your bank account, you don't have a whole lot of agency. Right. That, right. Um, but if you're the person who decided to deploy that for the bank, you're not the person who created it. Then there's some agency there. Right. Um, and I think we already have means, you know, imperfect and it still needs work for holding people accountable for their actions and the things they make and put in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- it's not like it's a dodge, as you say, to say mm-hmm. just because we now have mathy maths, it's a whole new problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oh dear, what are we going to do? How do we hold these new mathy maths accountable? It's mm-hmm. like, well, you don't, because that's a category error. There's, there's people there who are responsible. People make right. the decisions to create them and to put them out in the world and have the power to turn them off. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're like already kind of thinking about this. I mean, and we know, I mean, we already know who takes the fall for this stuff, right? I mean, when AI you know, when AI goes wrong or there's some kind of failure and sort of a data collection process or some kind of a decision, you know, the people, corporations are not taking these falls. Uh, AI, if you can sort of say a model is taking the fall, right? Um, When this happens, you know, the people who take this fall are data annotators, you know, people who are creating the data and, you know, Mila Michelli for, for instance, is a dear fellow, just defended her PhD yesterday also. <laughs> um, and she has documented that like the way that a lot of this, even the AI field talks about data laborers is that they are, um, you know, that are problems to be solved. There's like bias and that's problem, you know, there's like when we need to sort of erase the subjectivity of these people and you know who really, whose subjectivity we really ought to prioritize is like these people mostly in the West who, you know, really believe in these kind of articulations of, of liberty and, and freedom and all these kinds of uh, things typically based in kind of a U.S. Uh, constitutional right or sort of kind of a, um, the, the, the EU rights um, and, so, and, and kind of like the EU, EU human rights code. Um, and so it's, you're already sort of saying like, well, we already say like, you're already, <laughs> these things are already done in practice, right? And I, Blaze sounds like he's like saying, well, no, 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 we're going to unsettle this. But in a way that is like, you know, is already assuming a lot, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's already assuming that these these sort of things have kind of internal states. Um, and concepts. In, in concepts, right? Concepts. Yeah. <laughs> and this is kind of like fascinating, this idea of like a concept that this kind of machine has this kind of, internal state that has a, a, a representation of the concept as if that was not overlaid with clear boundaries by 
uh, annotator, or not annotators, but you know, data set curators or requesters and, mm-hmm. and people who are um, asking, you know, thousands of people to, you know, uh, uh, annotate this according to very strict guidelines or, you know, people at companies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so we're so we're like at the first. How much left is this on this? I mean, we need to do this again. Like, yeah. So I think we like look where my my scroll bar is here. I know. I oh yeah. Gosh, gosh. there's but, like yeah. a, maybe another. You know, like five hundred. There's another like ten thousand, twenty thousand words on this. We didn't even get to eat any act, which uh, no, I would have loved no, to. You know, like, and we didn't even get to where he calls out. You know. Uh, uh, parrot, you know, stochastic parrots. So, like, yeah, no, we, I, okay, the, this is yes. Yeah, so the scroll bar ends up down here. Yeah, and we were like up here. Yeah, yeah, there. yeah. So, like, maybe yeah. okay. So maybe yeah. Wells is asking, how did he have the time to write this? Like, I'm really curious how someone <laughs> when when we were at Google, we spent a lot of time just putting out fires. I'm really curious how like a VP has you know has enough time. <laughs> like and um it's it's what's like maybe maybe he is one of andrew ing's like famous i worked 18 hours a day you know like and if he is like you know some some people relax in different ways um some (laughs) and some people you know like some people love to write long medium posts and you know like you know go for it um but you know i will you know there's I don't want to, you know, criticize Blaze's time management techniques, and I'd love to get into the rest of this. So maybe one thing we can do, and is like, you know, make this into a series. We can sort of, you know, do, you know, do two or three. I don't know, however long it takes. You know, like <laughs> yeah. we might figure out how to be a little bit more efficient, but yeah. It's- we could turn a series on just this one post. Yeah, we could we could do that, and then I think maybe we do a group read of of, of something by Nick Bonstrom because I do oh, think there's. <laughs> I mean, I might have to have my like bottle of Pepto Bismol right by me, but nice from Hank. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. But we'll. Uh, yeah, and some people are in, and they're saying they're like you know asking if this is a Google blog or a personal one, but it is. It is. It is a personal one, but it does have to get approved by Google. So, you know, if you want to put anything on Medium, you know, and he has 4,000 followers, then it gets shared. So, you know, there's, there is a reach and a bit of a cult of personality involved here. So next time, bring your bingo card. Yes, Ben, bring your drink. Uh, you know, it's we're doing this in the middle of the day, and it's a Wednesday. I mean... Maybe we can do it on a Friday, and then we can just, you know, you can have your drink next to you um, of your choice. I'm going to have my my tea. Uh, (laughs) And then, you know, maybe we can, and and I'm glad we got the sound fixed, (laughs) so we'll actually do this. (laughs) So, yeah. um, Oh, yeah, it's evening here. Uh, We'll also have... um, you know the recording. We're gonna put. I'm gonna post this on YouTube um, for folks that missed it. And yeah, but 
Hey, Emily, this is a pleasure. I think I think the people say this this should be a series. Yes, I, I love um, the last time I'm here. This was agony. We have to do it again. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is great. Misery loves company. Thank you all so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for joining. It was a pleasure, and thanks for chatting and chat. You know, y'all are y'all are great, and you know, we hope you'll join us next time for Mystery AI Hype Theater Three Thousand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you alright thanks Emily bye all that's it for this week our theme song is by Toby Menon production by Christy Taylor and thanks as always to the Distributed AI Research Institute if you like this show you can support us by donating to DARE at dareinstitute.org that's D-A-I-R hyphen institute.org find us in all our past episodes on PeerTube and wherever you get your podcasts you can watch and comment on the show while it's happening live on our Twitch stream. That's twitch.tv slash dare underscore institute. Again, that's D-A-I-R underscore institute. I'm Emily M. Bender. I'm Alex Hanna. Stay out of AI hell, y'all.